This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Faris Hussain. I'm a first-year law student at the University of Ottawa, Faculty of Law. My interests lie in commercial and constitutional law, with a very specific interest in contract commercial arbitration, as well as charter litigation. I'm also passionate about civic engagement and public service, which led me to host today's episode, which asks why it is that many lawyers find their calling at some point in their careers to public service and politics. Today, I have the distinct privilege of being in the company of Professor Alan Rock, formerly Minister Alan Rock, who is a Canadian lawyer, former politician, diplomat, and university administrator. Professor Rock was Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, where he led the successful Canadian effort to secure a unanimous adoption by United Nations member states of the responsibility to protect populations from genocide, ethnic cleansing, and other mass atrocities. He has also previously served in the cabinet of Jean Chrétien, most notably as Minister of Justice and Attorney General and Health Minister. Professor Rock was appointed as President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Ottawa by its Board of Governors in 2008 and served his term until 2016. He has subsequently been designated as President Emeritus. Professor Rock joined the U Ottawa Faculty of Law in 2018, where he is currently a full professor specializing in subjects related to international law. He was appointed to the Order of Canada in 2020. Professor Rock, thank you for making the time. Well, not at all. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. All right, I guess we can get right to the questions. Let's start off from the beginning of your career, in the early days. In your law school days, what was Professor Alan Rock doing in his spare time? Did he always know that public service was on the horizon, or were you primarily focused on you know, the corporate and commercial aspect of the law and becoming a lawyer? Well, frankly, um, I, I, I went to law school at University of Ottawa, of course, and I also went to uh, undergrad at University of Ottawa, so I was there I had been there for four years in university before I, I went to law school. And when I started law school, I, it was sort of a continuation of everything I'd been doing before that. I, I was always very much involved in extracurricular activities, um, and I had a job outside of my studies. So I, I was busy. Um, I mean, I was president of the debating society on campus. I was running the uh, campus radio program uh, at CKOY. Uh, I was active in the student association, both in my faculty and campus-wide. And in fact, at the end of my first year of law school, I was elected president of the student association for the university, um, which was a lot of fun. At the end of my second year of law school, I got a job at the Department of Justice, which I kept through third year and indeed into the summer after third year before I went to Toronto to article. So I was, um, I was very busy. I liked to be engaged in a number of activities all at the same time. And so um, I wasn't really thinking much about, I certainly wasn't thinking about politics. And to the extent to which I thought about practicing law, um, although it seemed a bit distant when I was in law school and, and articling, my interest was certainly in litigation. I, I saw myself as uh, an advocate in the courtroom. I was excited by the idea of being on my feet, uh, arguing cases, cross-examining witnesses, all the, the usual things one thinks of in terms of being a trial lawyer. 
And um, so that's that's the direction I wanted to go in. And when I applied for an articling position, it was certainly in Toronto. I wanted to get the heck out of Ottawa, where I'd spent my whole life until that point. <laughs> and so um, I went to Toronto and interviewed at uh, eight or ten law firms. And I really wanted to go to Faskins, which is where I ended up, because they had a, a terrific reputation as a litigation firm with some fabulous counsel um, from whom I knew I could learn. So I was very fortunate in getting an articling offer from Faskins, and I I went there and um, stayed there for 23 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. So immediately there are a number of things that you've mentioned that, you know, you did throughout your your studies and law school studies. Um, What struck out to me, what you just mentioned is that, you know, you were elected president after your first year of your class. I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Was it just because you were just naturally uh, charismatic and you people just magnet like, you know, I I guess kind of just like magnetized towards you and you just kind of had that. Uh, I guess, feel towards your community and you were just that much engaged with your peers? Well, no, I, I don't think it had anything to do with uh, char- charisma, Faris. The, uh, the fact is that I had been active in student government uh, since my undergrad days. And then after the end of uh, first year law school, um, there was uh, there was an annual election for president of the uh, campus-wide student association and I decided to to run for it. There were other people who ran as well. It was um, I was attracted to the idea of um, uh, being in a position of authority with student government, which I thought had been poorly run up to that time. <laughs> I was critical of it. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, this is a time of great activism on the campuses. This is the time of the Vietnam War, of protests, demonstrations of students demanding a right uh, to participate in the governance of the university. At the University of Ottawa, um, there were no students on the board, no students on the Senate. We felt completely locked out of the administration. And so I ran um, for election on the platform of opening up the university to student participation. And um, I think that that theme or that issue uh, really attracted the um, attention and, and support of the student body generally. I mean, we had a very vigorous campaign. There were three candidates. We had campus-wide debates, and I visited classrooms throughout the campus while I was running for the office. But my theme was that the time had come to open up the university to students. Because of the history of the university, formerly as a Catholic university run by the Oblate priests, it was extremely conservative when it came to student involvement. So I was elected, and during my term as student council president, I advocated very vigorously, and we ended up with students uh, on both the board and the Senate the following year, and I thought it was a real breakthrough for student uh, student participation and democratic governance. So uh, yeah, it had nothing to do with my charisma, which has always been missing throughout my political career. It, I think it had to do with the issues, and... Um, the fact that I was able to strike a chord that students found uh, resonant. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that's very interesting. And I think I'm going to circle back to this later on when we talk more about your political career specifically. But let's talk about your transition into your legal career. You know, you talked about how, you know, Faskins gave you the opportunity that you were very grateful for. And, you know, you obviously had a decorated legal career before you stepped into the House of Commons. 
with your work in you know civil and commercial and administrative litigation. But what did you do to remain politically engaged? You know, whether it was a party of your choice or with your community, whilst you were you know uh, a lawyer for Faskins and whilst you know you were a lawyer traditionally speaking. Absolutely nothing. Uh, my focus was entirely on law and the legal profession. Um, the first 10 years of my practice, I did absolutely nothing but but practice. I, um, one of the people I articled with was John Sapinka, who was then one of the chairs of the litigation department at Faskins. And I, I spoke to Sapinka when I first began to practice because I had such great admiration for him. He went on to become a judge in the Supreme Court of Canada, of course. But um, mm-hmm. one of the pieces of advice that Pinka gave me that I followed, we said, in the first 10 years of your practice, Alan, take any case that comes in the door. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you've had experience in that branch of the law. Learn it and just do it. And after 10 years, you will have developed a breadth of experience in the law, which will give you confidence as counsel to be able to take on any case that comes in. And this, this was really the age of the general counsel. I think things have become a lot more specialized and restrictive now. But in those days, people like Sapinka and Walter Williston, Ron Rolls, Bill Graham, and the other litigation counsel at Faskins would take on any case that involved parties fighting each other uh, before a court, before a tribunal. Um, and uh, this could be matrimonial, it might be intellectual property, it could be tax, whatever got them on their feet, representing an interest, arguing a case, advancing a cause. And that really captured my imagination. That's what I wanted to do. So for the first 10 years of my practice, Faris, I worked I mean, I guess some might say that I was a workaholic. I did it by choice. I loved it. I uh, I worked night and day, weekends. Uh, if the case required it, I'd be down in the office on a Saturday night getting my casebook together or preparing my argument. And I just immersed myself completely and absolutely in the law. Um, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And so... Politics was the last thing on my mind. And by the way, after 10 years, the second 10 years of my practice, um, well, I got married. And so that (laughs) changed my priorities. (laughs) Um, Suddenly there was somebody else uh, to think of. I couldn't be as selfish as I had been. Um, But I was ready to to broaden and go beyond the uh, Toronto Dominion Bank Tower and open up my life a bit. So um, my life after in the second 10 years of my practice became uh, my marriage and kids. And also uh, after 10 years of practice, I was elected a bencher. So I became involved in the governance of the legal profession. And uh, so I was either at the Law Society up at Osgoode Hall or I was in court or I was at the office or at home. That was my world. And uh, I thought about politics not at all. I was focusing on winning cases for my clients. I was focusing on work at the Law Society and focusing on building a family with Debbie. We had uh, four kids, and um, so it was a very full and, and busy and, and active life. That's that's very wholesome to hear, Professor. It's, very, uh, it's interesting to note that you mentioned that uh, the advice that Justice Pinka gave, obviously very decorated legal mind in Canada uh, himself, but um, the, the fact that you know, you really immersed yourself 
and then you kind of had that career transition obviously with obviously you know you know your marriage and everything we can talk a little bit more about your personal life a little bit later towards the segment of this episode but i wanted to ask maybe in those like like you know the 10 years when you were involved as a bencher and you were brought you said that you mentioned that you were broadening your horizons a bit did you maybe get a taste of you know issues of public importance in canada at that time or was it really again politics was again not at your concern at all well obviously we i mean debbie and i were uh, aware of what was going on in the country um we were aware of um, the constitutional turmoil that came with uh, Meech Lake Accord. We were aware of the economic issues that arose from the transition to a free trade agreement with the United States. Um, so we were aware of public issues, but again, I was very busy, and my focus was on a you know a very busy practice um, mm-hmm. in court uh, and with clients and. I became chair of the litigation department at Faskins myself. We had 100 people in the department at that point. So yeah, that was a busy job. At the Law Society, I was chair of the Legal Education Committee and of the Equity Committee and later of the Discipline Committee. And then I became treasurer of the Law Society, which was uh, practically a full-time job. So between uh, the Law Society and Faskins and home. And I was also teaching. I taught at law school, civil procedure and injunctions, which I really enjoyed. It wasn't until, Mm -hmm. I guess, it wasn't until three years before the first election I ran in, uh, when I actually became a member of a political party. I had not to that time been a member of any political party. But in the uh, few years before the election, um, we decided, Debbie and I decided, we were going to work to support a candidate for the Liberal Party in our riding. We weren't happy with the way the country was going. We thought that uh, we didn't agree with the Meech Lake proposals. We thought the constant emphasis on constitution and referenda uh, was divisive. We were worried about the unity of Canada. Uh, we thought that it would put in play recklessly. The economy was not doing well. There was 11% unemployment. The transitional programs required by the free trade agreement had not been put in place. Uh, So it was a difficult time. The economy was bad. Politics was difficult. The constitutional crisis was damaging. We decided to support the Liberal Party in the next election and work for the election of the candidate in our riding. And in fact, the candidate in our riding, who'd, who'd run in the previous election, had come very close to beating Michael Wilson, who was our member of Parliament. Michael Wilson had been the Minister of um, Finance, Minister of Industry, and was very prominent in Canada. A terrific guy, by the way. But we decided to support the candidate running against him because we thought it was time for a change in government. So at that point, I did become a member of the Liberal Party. I assisted in fundraising and uh, signing up members and all that sort of thing. And my intention was not to become a candidate myself, but rather to support her the candidate who'd run in 88 and done so well. But the problem was that about a year before the election, she decided not to run. She uh, and her husband accepted a position in Europe. He was a very um, accomplished environmental advocate, and he took a job in Europe, and she accompanied him. So we were looking for a candidate, and eventually I was invited to... uh, seek the nomination, which I did. So 
that's really how I, I got involved in politics. And that's how I ended up being a candidate. That's very, very interesting. I, I, I'm, and you know, you and your wife's conversations. I'm just getting, I'm, I'm just getting a resemblance of, you know, your, 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 your willingness to engage with the issues that was very much present in your student advocacy as well in your law school days. I'm just getting that um, some traits remain with us even as we, you know, uh, you know, um, progress in our professional careers. I, I wanted to ask then, when you were invited to become a candidate yourself, what that invitation, was that based off of, you know, your your decorated career? Was it, again, your willingness for the issues and, your, you know, your passion for it? What was it that really drove the invitation for I you to become a candidate? I think it was because I was a warm body and I was available. I mean, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, the writing association in my writing was surprised, taken by surprise, that Mary was not going to run again. And uh, they were casting about for a candidate, frankly, and I was there. Um, I had become active in the party to support her, but people became aware that I was there. I mean, I was a lawyer. I could, uh, you know, string a sentence together in a paragraph. Um, <laughs> I, I was obviously interested in the issues. I was a committed. Uh, I was committed to the Liberal Party at that stage, and so the uh, Riding Association. Uh, which was organizing the uh, nomination process, asked me to consider being a candidate. And I have to tell you, it was the hardest decision I've ever made in my life, Varys. Um, the, uh, the few months before I decided to actually become a candidate, it was so difficult because, frankly, I, I was living a life that I loved. We had just built a new house in the Kingsway section of... Uh, of Toronto in my riding in Etobicoke. Um, I was treasurer of the Law Society, which I'd worked toward for some years. I was chair of the litigation department at Faskins. I had a terrific practice. I had great cases. I had terrific relationships with other lawyers in the profession with whom I had cases. Um, and I was still inspired and motivated by the ideals that I internalized as a young lawyer watching the great counsel argue cases. And so I was very reluctant to give that up. Uh, I knew that there would be a financial consequence. I knew that there'd be an enormous lifestyle consequence. There'd be an impact on the family. I knew that I'd be stepping into uh, up the public arena with all the controversy and, uh, and all of the comp complexities that come from a life in, in public office. So I was very much of two minds. I mean, <laughs> two minds, literally. One day I'd wake up <laughs> thinking, oh, I think I should do this. And the next hour I'd be thinking, I can't possibly do this. It was agonizing. And the two of us, Debbie and I both had to, had to puzzle it through. But, um, you know, I eventually decided I would seek the nomination and I would run for office. And um, once I did that, once I actually became involved, um, I never looked back and I never regretted it. And and frankly, you know, it opened so many doors for me. It, it created so many opportunities. It enriched my life in so many ways. Uh, I'm very glad I'm, I made that decision at that fork in the road. I, I wonder sometimes if I, if today, 
I would want to be doing what I was doing when I ran for public office. Would I still want to be practicing in the same office with the same people, dealing with the same issues in the same courtrooms? And I think, you know, although although I didn't find it the least bit boring at the time, I think by now I might have found it a bit of the same, you know? And so I'm very glad that I took uh, this step and, and entered a new and different world. It was scary, but um, I don't regret it. And I'm very glad I did it. That's amazing to hear. Um, so let's talk about this transition into this new world. How did you find the transition to political life from the demands of an already illustrious legal career? Um, were there specific skills that you know you found that lawyers have or you had that could be applied in a in a political or public service career that gave you maybe an edge or that helped you immensely? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, the experience I had as a lawyer was a was sort of a mixed uh, blessing. First of all, um, you know, as as trial lawyers, we learn to. Um, express ourselves and and advocate a position, organize an argument, marshal the facts, master the law, um, make our point, um, be conscious of the audience before whom we're arguing. All of those were a great advantage. And um, but but the downside is all, all of that and my experience in the court of appeal in, in motions court. In the trial court, Supreme Court of Canada, was of very limited value when it came to the cut and thrust, the rough and tumble of political life. I mean, when I started in politics, I spoke as though I was addressing the Court of Appeal, uh, which is nice. It's formal. It's polite. Uh, I spoke in paragraphs. My thoughts were organized. <laughs> my thoughts were organized. I developed my positions in the proper sequence logically. But, you know, then I'd sit down and my opponent would stand up and in one third of the time, using much more direct and blunt language, would make the point, I thought, far more effectively for a political audience. And so I had to unlearn and relearn. I, I, when I came to the doorstep in my first election, um, seeking votes, knocking on doors in my own riding, the people who went around with me would say to me at the end of the day, Alan, you've got to simplify the message. You've got to boil it down to the basics. You, you don't have 40, 50 minutes to make your submission. Uh, <laughs> spit it out. Uh, make it plain and simple. And that was a painful process. It was hard because I always thought I was oversimplifying and I felt, God, I can't say that because it leaves unanswered so many questions. I have to anticipate the questions that the voter is going to ask and I have to respond up front. And then the seasoned politician listening to me would say, no, you don't. Just spit it out. Keep it simple. Keep it to the headlines. Boil down the message to something that's digestible. So... I mean, it was an advantage to have developed the skills we have as lawyers of discerning what's relevant from what's irrelevant, um, using logic to create uh, your your position or your reasoned uh, argument, um, 
identifying red herrings and, and streaming them out and focusing just on what's relevant. But the downside was my formality, uh, my uh, sort of remoteness. Uh, there wasn't anything immediate or visceral or emotional about my pitch. It was all very, as I say, it was like I was addressing the Court of Appeal. If you're in, <laughs> if you're in the Court of Appeal, that's great. But if you're on the street with traffic in the background and a voter at the door with who's in the middle of dinner worried about what his kids are doing and what's on television that night and you're interrupting all that to make your pitch, you better boil it down and make it simple and compelling, man. So I had to learn that. Yeah. I had to learn that. I mean, I, I admired something that Kim Campbell once said, our former prime minister. She said, I am the master of the 30-minute soundbite. <laughs> That's the way I felt. Yeah. I felt that, you know, give me an hour and I could make my case very persuasively, but you don't have an hour. You never have an hour. You don't have an hour on the doorstep. You don't have an hour in the House of Commons. You don't have an hour before the committee. You don't have an hour when you're speaking to the media in a scrum. You've got to be um, blunt and be able to communicate your position uh, very succinctly. And, and that was something I had to learn. Yeah. Well, I mean, you definitely did a very uh, good job of learning it. I mean, you landed your the role of attorney general. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, uh, I don't know because um, I was elected in the, about a week after the election. I was summoned to come to Ottawa. Um, and uh, I remember it was Sunday morning. It was... Um, Halloween, October 31st, and I was asked to come and see the leader of the party, the prime minister-designate, who was Jean Chrétien. So I went in to see him, and um, I'd met him once before. I met him on the campaign trail when he was in Toronto. He came to my riding, and I introduced him. But I didn't know the man apart from his public persona. And... Um, he said, I, I, I want you to be my minister of justice and attorney general. And of course, I was thunderstruck because as a first time member of parliament, I was thinking that if, if my party was elected, uh, then as a backbencher, I might become a member of interesting committees. I might become a parliamentary secretary, but I had no expectation of being a minister at all. And to think that I would be invited to be Minister of Justice and Attorney General, which is such an enormous uh, honor and privilege for a lawyer, I was absolutely thunderstruck. So, of course, I told him I would be honored to do that, but, you know, I'd, I'd have to go over and to the department. I'd have to read our campaign platform. I'd have to get informed, and I'd come back and see him with a list of the um, priorities that I'd work on. And mm -hmm. he, looked at, yeah. he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, well, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I said, I've got a job. I've given you this one. Go and do it. I'm busy being prime minister. So <laughs> that, was, that was very much his approach with all ministers throughout his tenure uh, as prime minister. He, if he gave you the job, he expected you to go and do it. He didn't want you to come back. and uh, Unless there was a major issue that you had to take up with him or you needed instructions on a on a key point. So, yeah, so it was a, it was a shock. I was taken aback. I remember I, I flew back to Toronto that night and we went 
trick-or-treating with the kids door-to-door on uh, on Halloween. And um, I uh, I was so distracted by the by the news that I was going to be sworn in as Attorney General of Canada, it was hard to keep my focus on the kids' candy. But, <laughs> but uh, it was it was a remarkable period, and the learning curve, of course, was enormous. And uh, I had an awful lot to learn and an awful lot to do. But it was a great privilege. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. Uh, I mean, was it similar with your role as UN ambassador? Did it sort of kind of just fall into your lap? Or was that more of like a formalized process in which you had to put your name forward? You're speaking of the UN? Yes. Well, no, the UN, um, uh, what happened there is that I'd spent 10 years in the cabinet, uh, in justice, in health, in uh, industry and infrastructure. And um, at the end of those 10 years, um, the prime minister that I served was retiring. And there was a transition to a new prime minister. And that that prime minister, Paul Martin, had his own ideas of who ought to be in his cabinet and on his team. And he was bringing in a fresh team. And, you know, after 10 years in the cabinet, um, a part of me felt that it was time to uh, to move on. And so during the transition, he asked me if I would be uh, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. And Debbie and I talked about it. And um I accepted and said that I would, and I'm very glad I did. I mean, that that was a fabulous position, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And again, where I learned so very much. So one doesn't, it's not like um, applying for something. It's uh, sometimes, you know, it's up to the prime minister, um, as, as it is in getting into cabinet. It's up to the prime minister. And I'd worked with Paul Martin for almost a decade. He was minister of... Uh, finance as you know and so we knew one another and uh, um, it was a great advantage once I once I got to the UN in New York it was a great advantage to have had uh, 10 years working with the PM working with the other people in cabinet Uh, it gave me an access that was extremely important in the work at the United Nations it gave me a knowledge of government and and politics and 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 of Canada that was important to bring with me to the UN when I represented the country in that forum. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a very good transition and I, I, I enjoyed that job so much. It was a real honor to represent Canada at the UN. That's very insightful. Did you find that your, uh, I know you mentioned that uh, transitioning into politics for the first time, you know, you kind of had to unlearn a lot of the legal skills that you had you know, learned in your illustrious legal career, but did you find that you, your skill set, your legal skill set was of use in uh, in the form of being ambassador to the United Nations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was very useful. Um, the, um, the fact is that the UN is very political. It's, it's not partisan, but it's very political. Um, mm-hmm. if, you, if you want to get something done, then you have to earn the support of colleagues in the General Assembly or the Security Council. Um, and you have to be an advocate for your position. So a, a lot of it, I mean, the, the training I had in law and in politics was very useful at the United Nations. Um, dealing with people, uh, networking to form, uh, to form 
a group of supporters uh, of an issue, um, persuading people to come to our cause, uh, all of that, reading, being able to read people and what motivates them and what's likely to work when you're trying to persuade them. Um, and of course, as I mentioned, the best asset of 10 years in cabinet was when an issue arose, I could call the prime minister directly and say, you know, I think we really ought to do this or do that. And when he came to New York, we'd be able to have discussions that were political as well as diplomatic. And so having that personal relationship with the prime minister and the ministers was enormously helpful as well. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a great job and I enjoyed every minute of it. It seems as though from what you're speaking about, it seems as though the, your, the role of the, the UN ambassador was a perfect, I guess, blend of your legal experience as well as your political experience. So that's very interesting that you mentioned that. Well, and the um, other good thing about it, Paris, is that uh, although it was political, it wasn't partisan and there was no media. I mean, in, in politics, every bloody day, you've got to do a scrum after question period outside the House of Commons. Media is pouring over uh, the record of what you're doing, looking for uh, issues and faults. And you're constantly dealing with the pressure of, uh, of, of, of a public, very public life. In New York, uh, first of all, I was anonymous. No one knew who the heck I was when I walked around the streets of New York, <laughs> which was a great relief. Losing your anonymity in Canada is quite a blow, but regaining it in New York was wonderful. And then there's no, no media attention. Uh, at the UN in New York. I mean, there's a bit now because of the war in Ukraine, but when I was there, uh, the UN was a place that media liked to ignore, so it suited me fine. Uh, I was able to uh, do my work, uh, pick the issues that I was interested in, and advance the interests of Canada without the public scrutiny that came with life in Parliament. So it was a terrific combination. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, now, we've spoken a lot about your career. Uh, let's bring the conversation onto a more personal level. Um, what ab about, I mean, you kind of alluded to this already when you just spoke about, you know, your role as an ambassador at the UN. But what about getting involved in politics did you come to regret? Well, I don't think I have uh, a regret. I mean, I, I think that's I've been so fortunate. I've had such terrific opportunities and experiences. It almost seems ungrateful to say that I have regrets. Obviously, not everything worked out the way I wanted it. Um, and there were some issues that arose in the course of my public life that were very difficult to manage. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have regrets. I mean, I just had privileges. I had an enormous privilege to sit in the cabinet for 10 years in those important posts to work with such fabulous people. Um, and the privilege of, uh, of working at the UN as ambassador. Um, and then of course, at, at the, at the university as president. So I don't think of it in terms of regrets. I think about some things I might've done differently had I gone back to do them, <laughs> do them again. Um, but I, I don't have regrets. I just have more than anything else. I have gratitude. Okay. Once well, on the on on the on the air of gratitude, what did you find most fulfilling? Um, well, you know, it sounds corny, but public service is 
a great privilege and an honor, and I, I really found that fulfilling. But more specifically, um, I hope that some of the legislation we introduced and some of the things I did in public life um, amount to an enduring contribution. I mean, I think about the... I introduced almost 30 pieces of legislation during my four years at the Department of Justice. And that included um, amendments to the criminal code uh, to try to keep the uh, number of, to, to reduce the, the disproportionate presence of indigenous people in, in prison, which gave rise to the Gladue judgment in the Supreme Court of Canada. That, that was legislation that I introduced. I introduced legislation on gun control, part of which was rolled back by the conservatives because they didn't like the registry of long arms, but things like licensing um, and um, you know, getting having having to be licensed to become a, a firearms owner that was that was our doing. I introduced legislation uh, with respect to hate crimes, uh, uh, legislation in the criminal code to protect the privacy of complainants' records in cases involving allegations of sexual dis- uh, assault, and of course the reference to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, on the question of secession. I made that reference as attorney general, and we got out of it that wonderful judgment from the Supreme Court of Canada with respect to the secession of Quebec. Uh, I I brought 300 names of judges to the cabinet for appointment to uh, federal courts across the country. Uh, In the health portfolio, um, we created the Institutes of Health Research and developed a national strategy for HIV AIDS and uh, pioneered medical marijuana. Uh, in the infrastructure portfolio, we invested you know, billions of dollars in infrastructure around the country. And at the United Nations, um, you mentioned working on responsibility to protect on the question of genocide and mass atrocity. That was very fulfilling as well. Um, R2P, mm-hmm. R2P has had a checkered uh, past, but it's only been 15 years since it was adopted. And Sometimes when you're making new international law, and this is actually a norm, it's not law, but it will be one day, um, it's, a, it's a slow process. It's a, it's a gradual process. And I think that our two people survive and in the long run will make a, a, a huge difference. So there are many moments of uh, fulfillment and many um, events and contributions that I think I hope will be enduring, and of which I'm very proud. So I think about those things rather than regrets. I think regrets are an indulgence for someone so fortunate as me. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, you mentioned the Gladue and the secession reference. I, <laughs> in my public law and criminal law examinations, we were questioned about those two topics. So <laughs> I think that's okay to say now. But uh, <laughs> it was very interesting that you, you mentioned that and gave me flashbacks of my exams. But um, well, it, it, uh, in, in, in fact, Ferris, uh, I've, I've taught public and constitutional law at the law school, and um, a lot of it felt like you know reminiscences, memory lane, because we talked about we talked about so much in which I had been involved. Um, in one of the constitutional cases, for example, involves Insight, uh, that uh, safe injection site in Vancouver that we created, and the Tories tried to shut yes. it. Tories tried to shut it down. The Supreme Court of Canada kept it open, which I thought was a fabulous uh, result. But whether it's that or or Gladue or the reference or many other things, I mean, 
much of the the public uh, and constitutional law course uh, brought back memories for me of um, situations in which I had the privilege to be involved and participate. And yeah, it was um, it was a, a nice combination of personal experience, professional training, and of course the teaching role that brought all that together. Perfect, perfect. We're on our final set of uh, questions now, just as we're wrapping up. Um, but I wanted to ask about, you know, your more family life, personal family life uh, during your time in public service. You know, some have mentioned that you have to reserve a, like a time in your life for a career in public service um, in which maybe you don't have too many personal commitments because of how demanding the, the roles can be. Did you find that to be the case? And did you find that it was feasible to maintain some semblance of balance uh, in your personal life uh, as opposed to, your, you know, when you were working in public service? It was, uh, it was a major challenge, no question about it. And being in, uh, in national politics is bound to have an impact on your family life. I mean, the year after I was first elected, we moved the family from Toronto to Ottawa. And that made, a lot, a lot, made things a lot simpler because... I was home every evening after the house uh, stopped sitting and I saw my kids uh, when I wasn't on the road. And and I also uh, developed the habit of taking one of them with me when I was on a trip, whether to Atlantic Canada or Quebec or the West, British Columbia, the North. And so, look, there's no question, and I think it's very difficult to deny, that involvement in public life has an impact on family life. But on the other hand, I think it is manageable. And I think you can find ways to find some reasonable kind of balance. And don't forget, too, as, as Debbie reminds me and the kids remind me now, because they're all, they're all grown now, they had advantages that, uh, because of my involvement in politics, that, that other kids didn't. They got exposed to experiences and people and places um, that... Others didn't, and they consider that to have been a sort of a gift. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's it's tough to do, but I think it's doable. You have to have a very, very supportive partner, which I was very fortunate to have in Debbie. And um, you have to, after politics is over, you have to do your share to make up for what you didn't do while you were in politics. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, it's a personal choice. And, uh, and... So I think it's one to be approached with caution, but also with confidence that you can make it all work. For sure. That's, that's very interesting. Did you, huh, I'm, I'm just thinking about everything that you mentioned because it gives us a lot of food for thought, uh, especially in a day and age when we live, when, you know, politics is so, is extremely all encompassing. What would you recommend if people have this in mind of doing litigator uh, as well as a, a career in public service, which one would you recommend first? Does litigator life kind of prepare you for the rigors of you know, politics and public service, or is it really up to the individual? It's a very personal decision, and I think everybody will have to make up their own mind. I, I don't think there's any hard and fast rule. Some people go into politics right out of uh, law school. Um, that's what Jean Chrétien did, and uh, you know he, he, he practiced for a couple of years, but then he spent, I don't know, 45 years in parliament. So Who's to say that's the wrong way of doing it? There's no right or wrong way. I think you have to choose the approach that fits your life and 
your lifestyle and your interests best. My own personal view, and speaking only now for myself, Faris, my own personal view was that I'm glad I did something uh, with my life before I got involved in politics because I felt that gave me something to uh, to put on the table when I presented myself as a candidate. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Uh, if I've done this, then I can do that. And um, and also, I think having as broad an experience as possible in law and in life before you go into politics is important because it gives you a broad perspective. You know, there's so many issues that arise in politics. It's such a complex and, and challenging and demanding uh, way of life. Being able to draw on broad experience as a human being um, with all the cases I had, the clients I represented, the courts I appeared before, the issues that I argued, the things that I saw about life, whether it was in my law firm, my partnership, or in the courtroom, all of that, I think, was a form of preparation for being in public life. It was a bit narrow, as I say. I, I, I spoke too much like I was arguing in the Court of Appeal, but but it was good preparation, and um, I'm glad I did it that way. All right. Well, we have the final question. And I know this entire podcast has been, you know, you giving golden nuggets of advice to all of us listening. But if there was one, if you could distill it down to one piece of advice that you would give to law students or lawyers listening who are interested and who aspire to get involved in politics and public service, what would it be? Well, I've, met, I've mentioned that I've emphasized that it's a very personal choice. My own, my own view is that you ought to be cautious and go slow um, and that you can never go wrong by becoming an excellent lawyer before you get involved in politics. Um, and, you know, take it one thing at a time, one step at a time. And I think that focusing on your legal career, your legal training, developing yourself as a lawyer, representing interests, um, is, is a very good way to prepare for public life. Not only does it broaden you as an individual and a person, not only does it give you experience with people and human nature, uh, but it also gives you a sense of confidence that you are a professional who's, who's competent and, and capable, that you're making a difference in the lives of people through your professional work as a lawyer. And that gives you confidence to move into a new arena, a new challenging complex and difficult arena of politics and public life. So I, I would just say if, if you're in law school or you're starting to practice and you also have an eye eventually on politics and public life, just be cautious and take it one step at a time. And, and maybe it's best to focus on your legal career first and then things will fall into place in the, in the political context. Professor Rock, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, I think all of us who will be listening to this episode have much to, to, to take from your, your pieces of advice and timeless wisdom. Um, again, thank you so much for making the time. For our listeners, hopefully you have gained some insights. Feel free to go onto our social media page for The Law School Show, our website, where you can access this podcast and any other podcasts of similar subject matter about the law and once again, thank you again, Professor Rock. It was and great. We will conclude. Great speaking with you, Ferris. Thanks for inviting me.
you've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.